What does it mean to inwardly digest God's Word? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. journal. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. John Warwick Montgomery tells his story of finding confessional Lutheranism to be the most scripturally faithful theology. The free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org. The hymn, The Gifts Christ Freely Gives, the third stanza. One of the things that I think people who eschew the liturgy fail to understand is that it's not an accidental structure. We don't just do things in a certain way because it's always been done in a certain way or a certain order. There is a logic, there is a flow, there is a movement to the liturgy, and it's designed over the millennia by faithful Christians practicing it to maximize the hearing of Christ's word of law and of gospel, both in the preaching and in the reading, but also in the administration of the Lord's Supper. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in live on this Thursday afternoon, the 29th of February. It's time for part four of our series on classical Christian worship. Dr. Arthur Just joins us. He's seasonal pastor at Grace Lutheran Church in Naples, Florida, professor of New Testament at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, and author of the two-volume Concordia Commentary on Luke and the book, Heaven on Earth, The Gifts of Christ in the Divine Service. Dr. Just, welcome back. Nice to be with you again, Todd. Last time we spoke, we did a quick survey of the various parts of the historic liturgy. Let's go through them in a little more detail one by one. Why do we begin with an invocation and a confession of sins and the pastor's absolution? Well, the invocation is a remembrance of our baptism, that we begin as the baptized, that we have been cleansed at the font, that we are ready now to come into the presence of God as those who have been cleansed and washed clean and forgiven, who have been joined to Christ by the Word and the Spirit, who bear the Trinitarian name, And then because we're entering holiness, almost like having a a cleansing so that we might hear the word of God and receive it in with and under the bread and wine, we confess our sins to God and receive holy absolution so that we are prepared in holiness to receive the gifts of God. Kind of like the baptism of John the Baptist that didn't make people Jews didn't initiate them into the religion of Judaism. They were already Jews, but it cleansed them to be ready, prepared for the inbreaking of the the incandescent holiness of Jesus and to be able to 
kind of travel up to Jerusalem as we are now doing in this season of Lent so that we might be prepared, holy, pure, worthy of receiving that presence. So it's it's really an introduction. It's It's not really part of the liturgy. It comes later on. So it's almost something that you could separate out from the liturgy, which starts with the the entrance hymn or the intro it or whatever that brings you into the presence of uh, the liturgy itself. But it's a wonderful way to prepare. And I think it's, for many lay people, it's sometimes the most important part because they understand how they need to confess and receive absolution before coming into the presence of Jesus. What is the entrance rite, and how is it structured? Well, the entrance rite was what it was called. And ent- I mean, it did what it said. It, it was when you entered into the church. I mean, the entrance rite begins when the churches get very large, and you have to bring in a whole bunch of clergy and their attendants, and they would move through the congregation, which would you know, there were no pews, so everybody's standing there and chanting maybe psalms or a hymn. And the entrance rite was the way in which the clergy moved into the altar area and took their place so that they could be ready to read the Word of God. It's Because it's movement, it was accompanied by music. That's sort of a principle of ritual behavior, that when you're moving, you oftentimes will hear music. And there were various things that they did. I mean, they did psalms probably at first, and then the Kyrie comes about in the East, and it's a the original one was petitionary, so it's that there's an image there of the king entering and receiving petitions, and it's really not as much uh, penitential as it is the request that in this liturgy, in this presence of Christ through word and sacrament we might receive these gifts. And the number one gift is peace. That word, I think, is used more in the liturgy than any other word. And that that is why we ask God for mercy, because he's going to give us these gifts as an expression of his mercy. And then in Rome, I think it was fourth century, they began to sing a hymn that was associated with Christmas, the Gloria in Excelsis, that comes from Luke 2, 14. And that beautiful hymn then was kind of accompanied by this magnificent Trinitarian hymn about the Father and especially the Son, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, which will be echoed later on in the Agnus Dei, the first hymn of the distribution. And that Trinitarian hymn with the Glorian Excelsis sort of becomes the main thing that was sung during the entrance rite. And in the ancient church, when everybody had kind of finally got into the church and taken their place in the altar area, the presiding minister would bring the whole entrance right to a halt by collecting the thoughts of everybody and oftentimes focused on what the lessons were going to be, the theme of the day. And he would bring it to a halt, a very pious one, by praying the collect of the day. And that, that was a way of saying to everyone, okay, now we're going to hear the word of God. The, the liturgy of the word is about to begin. 
How would you describe that liturgy of the Word? The liturgy of the Word is a beautiful movement through the scriptures, starting with the Old Testament as kind of the the prophecy and reaching the climax in the gospel, which is the fulfillment. And early on, the Old Testament and the gospels were always coordinated. They were done in a thematic way. So whatever the theme was of the Old Testament, it would be reflected then somehow in the gospel or the theme of the gospel would then be reflected by the choice of the Old Testament lesson. For the epistles, what they liked to do, because it was a letter, and they were, of course, doing this with the Gospels, too. There was a continuous reading of the Gospels in the ancient church. For the epistle, they would do a continuous reading so that people could hear the whole letter and hear it in its context. So they would read through Galatians or 1 Corinthians or the Thessalonian correspondence. And oftentimes, there would be obviously themes from the epistle lesson that would complement the Old Testament and gospel. But the movement there is to the very words of Jesus, and that's the climax of the liturgy of the word, that these are the words of Jesus himself. And that's why they would sing an alleluia in the ancient church. That's why in our churches today, because we're sitting in pews, we stand up because this is the voice of Jesus, the viva vox Jesu, the living voice of Jesus. And that's really why we came together. That's why the Old Testament was written. That's why Paul writes his epistles, because he's standing on the gospel. The narrative substructure of all Paul's letters are the gospels themselves. So the the liturgy of the word is a way for us to hear, you know, Jesus speak to us and for us to respond back sometimes between the lessons with psalmody or, again, maybe a, a hymn or an anthem, but always something that gives us an opportunity to meditate on what we just heard. And, and that was very much a part of the way in which Christians kind of adapt what was going on in the synagogue liturgy. I've mentioned before that they started with the most important books, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And then everything was an interpretation of that afterwards. And they would have Psalms in between the lessons to reflect on the reading. Christians reversed it, ending with the most important, but they kept the Psalms. We sometimes call it the gradual. Oftentimes there was a theme verse or some sort of a little hymn with the Alleluia attached that would anticipate the gospel. And then in many churches, this would kind of come to a close with the preaching, which was a continuation of the climax of the gospel. So it's not the climax, but it's part of it. Here's the the way in which you now hear what happened in the three lessons. And the, the sermons would go back and reflect on the Christological character of the readings, and especially on the words of Jesus, but also at the same time, creating in the hearer a hunger and thirst for righteousness, which is really a hunger and thirst for the sacrament. So it would be like the hinge between the word and the sacrament. Go back and interpret the scriptures, but then look forward to how we will, in a sense, 
embody the word we heard by eating and drinking the very body and blood of Christ. Later on, in about the year 1000, a creed was added. And this was a chance because baptisms were not as frequent, weren't always done in the church. It was an opportunity for the Christian people of that time in the Middle Ages to confess their baptismal faith. And in a way, it was a wonderful sort of summary of sort of the content of what the liturgy of the word was about from the Old Testament right through the preaching. And so it was a wonderful sort of conclusion to the liturgy of the word and a, a indication that we were now going to go into the next part of the liturgy, which is the preparation of the table to get ready for the sacrament. Dr. Arthur Just is our guest. It's part four of our series on classical Christian worship. Why is there a brief rite of preparation before the sacrament itself? We'll answer that question next. Listen to the best of the church's music for the season of Lent at LutheranPublicRadio.org. Sacred music for the season of Lent, LutheranPublicRadio.org. How did God address the Gentile nations through the prophet Isaiah? What is God's message to his own people regarding both judgment and consolation? And how does Isaiah's divine message apply to us today? Find out in the new Concordia Commentary on Isaiah, chapters 13 through 27. Learn more at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February, the Concordia Commentary on Isaiah 13 through 27. For sinners only, you're listening to Issues Etc. Many educational institutions are governed by the whims of culture and are increasingly hostile to the Word of God. In contrast, Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, provides classical Lutheran education rooted in God's Word for students preschool through grade 12. Simply put, we equip students to stand firm in the faith through solid education focused on wisdom and virtue. We offer in-person instruction as well as live online classes for remote learning. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your service. Our church loves and is grateful for those that serve our country. Operation Barnabas, part of Ministry to the Armed Forces, equips you to reach out to veterans in your community to bring Christ to those that served. Call Ministry to the Armed Forces at 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. Thank you for your service. Thank you. God bless our military. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's part four of our series on classical Christian worship with Dr. Arthur Juss, author of the book Heaven on Earth, The Gifts of Christ in the Divine Service. 
LCMS Worship is hosting the 2024 Institute on Liturgy, Preaching, and Church Music, July 9th through the 12th at Concordia University, Nebraska. Songs of Deliverance, Psalms in the Great Congregation is the theme. For more information, go to LCMS Worship, lcms.org slash worship. Dr. Jess, before the break, you mentioned this brief rite of preparation for the table before the Liturgy of the Lord's Supper. Why do we have this rite? Well, again, many of these things go back to the to the early Christians. And again, once they had big churches, for whatever reason, they didn't bring the bread and wine in during the entrance rite to the Liturgy of the Word. They brought it in in what comes to be known as the Great Entrance, the entrance of the bread and wine before the sacrament and all the vessels and everything that would be necessary to set the altar, the table for the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And again, because there's movement, there's a procession, there's candles, there's probably a cross, there's a lot of attendance. There was a a musical kind of accompaniment of this procession. And it, it could go on for a while because oftentimes at a big church, it took time to get in, get the table set, everything ready for the, for the sacrament. Mostly psalms were sang. There were obviously some hymns that might be sung. The one that kind of came down to us that is the one most of our listeners would know is what we call the create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Psalm 51, a beautiful way of singing as the table is being set. This was called the offertory because what was going to happen was the offering now of the gifts that were going to be used for the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And there, there's something really meaningful about this. I always tell students, if there was any innovation that I would do in the congregation, it might be to have the, the bread and the wine brought in with the offering and laid on the table that these are the things that, along with our, our other gifts, we are setting aside now to carry the very body and blood of Christ, that these things are being brought forward and set aside for a holy purpose. And I, I think it has great symbolic value, and it, it sort of, in a way, sort of encapsulates why we have an offering, because we're setting these things aside gifts that have been given to us to now be given back to God to be used for either the celebration of the supper or for works of mercy and the the sustaining of the life of the church. The life of the church is that it's expressed in in her ministry and in the in the diaconia, the service of the church to the poor and the needy, and for missions for those who know not Christ, that we might send out missionaries into the harvest. Let's back up into the service of the Word just a little bit and go through some of the details there. What role does preaching play in the liturgy itself, but especially in what we're discussing here, the preparation to receive Christ's body and blood? Well, I think one of the things that preaching needs to do is to make people recognize that that in that very preaching, Christ is made present, and that the reason we're here is because Christ is here in his, his flesh. 
that we speak about the presence of Jesus, the person of Jesus, his divine and human nature, that person is present. And our salvation can never be detached from the flesh of Jesus, as my good professor, Dr. William Weinrich, said to me in my first class at the seminary in early church. Never forget it as long as I live. And I think preaching helps people to recognize that what they are communing on in their ears and in their mouths is the flesh of Jesus, Jesus who is here with his gifts. And if Jesus is there in the flesh, what do we have? We have the forgiveness of sins. That's the most important gift, that we are being freed from the bondage of our sin. We are are being absolved, let go, released. That's the word that is the literal translation of the word for forgiveness, released of our sins. And where there is forgiveness of sins, there's also life and salvation. So our, our liturgy of word and sacrament, where Christ is present, the living Christ, the eternal Christ, when we commune with that presence through word and sacrament, especially when we hear that word preached in our ears, we have his life. That's the life we're talking about, the life that he gives us, that he joined to our flesh in baptism and that he continues to nurture through our ears and our mouths, through word and sacrament. But we also have salvation, which is rescue. We've been saved from the enemies. And I think you have to have a sense of, of kind of the, the temptations of the devil and the onslaughts of the devil, that the darkness does begin to sometimes hover over us. And Satan is using that darkness to kind of snatch us away from Christ. And what Jesus does is he rescues us from Satan, like somebody who falls off a ship. You know, it's a simple image, but they're drowning. They're in the darkness of the deep, and we throw them a life jacket or a lifesaver, and we pull them back into the boat, into the boat, which, as you know, was always an image of the church. So, I mean, these are the things we receive through preaching. We receive this union with Christ and all that that means, forgiveness, life, and salvation. So there's a, a sense there that we, we now understand that, yes, he's here in the preaching, but oh my goodness, we are going to come forward now and we're actually going to receive his very body and blood. We're going to eat and drink the crucified and risen Christ. And so in, in that way, it prepares us for the presence of Christ. It prepares us for the, the fact that he is there and we are going to commune with his flesh. How do the creeds in time connect to preaching? Well, the creeds are baptismal. They were always formed for the baptismal faith, and they're a great summary of the baptismal faith. So not, of course, every sermon or every liturgy of the Word has every member of the Trinity explicitly referred to, but it certainly gives us a way of saying what we just heard in the Scripture and what we just heard in the sermon is what we now embrace as our Trinitarian confession, that we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, and that we believe in the Holy Spirit and all that goes along with that. And the creed, in a way, also, especially the Nicene Creed, it articulates the journey that he came down from heaven, was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary, 
he suffered, died, and was buried. The third day he rose, and on the 40th, he ascends back to heaven. So in a way, the Nicene Creed in the, in the second article concerning Jesus reminds us that the whole scriptures is about this journey of Jesus from heaven back to heaven, that the Old Testament prophesied about that, and the New Testament, especially the Gospels, relate that journey of Jesus from heaven, where he sort of invades our world like an alien from another world, and then descends all the way into the belly of the earth like a seed that dies, and then it rises again to this new life and then ascends back to heaven, where in the ascension we celebrate that we are in Jesus already enthroned in heaven, that in the person of Jesus, we, because we are in Christ, we are already in heaven through our ascended Lord. So the creed allows us to confess all of this. And then, of course, in the third article, we confess the forgiveness of sins. We confess the Holy Christian Church. We talk about how we're going to have this communion of the saints, especially in the communion of his very body and blood. So it's a wonderful way to remind ourselves baptismally by making the sign of the cross at the end that this is the content of what we believe and confess. And that what we just heard in the word is simply something that is part of this great confession and that it all comes together in a way when we confess the creed. We will talk about the prayer of the church in the communion liturgy with Dr. Arthur Just in part four of our series on classical Christian worship. You can support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. by purchasing a cell phone case from Crossway, crossweh.com slash LPR. You'll find cell phone cases for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, and Luther's Seal with the Reformation Solas, crossweh.com slash LPR. A percentage of your purchase will support Issues Etc., Cross weh.com slash LPR. The way we as Christians view history is going to be different from how non-Christians view history. As a Christian, you already know what history is about. Jesus coming to save you. So wrote Molly Lackey in her inaugural article for Our Great Heritage, a new series at the Lutheran Witness online website on the history of the Lutheran Church and great historical figures in our history. To learn more, visit witness.lcms.org. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Teaching your student to read should not be complicated. Memoria Press's phonics uses common sense and the classical approach with their First Start Reading program for the most effective and efficient way to teach your child how to read. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. This is what we believe and confess at Grace Lutheran Church in Rochester, Minnesota, and we apply this verse through the reverent, joyful, and traditional divine service. 
If you live in Rochester or are visiting, we invite you to join us for the Divine Service on Sunday at 9 a.m. or Wednesday at 6 p.m. Our website is gracebythelake.org. Equipping the priesthood of all believers, you're listening to Issues Etc. You may be one of those pastors who need to be refreshed and refueled because of your parish ministry. Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Charles Gieschen. Concordia Theological Seminary has a wonderful program, not only in continuing education during the summer, but in an advanced study program called the Doctor of Ministry. And it's a very practical program because it focuses on congregational ministry. It incorporates biblical theology with the ministry of the congregation. It's also very accessible for pastors, and it's also affordable. You can major in pastoral care and leadership, teaching and preaching, or mission and culture. And we pray that pastors will take advantage of this program. Learn more about the Doctorate of Ministry program at ctsfw.edu or by calling 1-800-481-2155. Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. It's part four of our series on classical Christian worship. Dr. Arthur Just is our guest. Dr. Just, what is the prayer of the church? The prayer of the church was traditionally, in the, in the beginning, a prayer that was to, in a way, imitate the way the Jews petitioned God for all the needs that they have in body and soul. And this certainly would include the, the people of God and the, the very people of God gathered there in worship. You know, the people who have needs because of sickness, because of poverty, because of death and grieving or whatever. But it's also prayers for the evangelization of the world, for the people who know not Christ, for our enemies, for those who persecute us. So it's, it looks beyond our congregation into the larger world, even praying for the, the civic leaders, the, the people who are in charge of the kind of governing the world in which we live. But it's also a prayer in which we focus, especially at the end, for those who are struggling in the church, for the penitents, for those who are, are seeking baptism. We, they call them in the ancient church the catechumens. So there was prayers over these specific groups of people, even those who may have kind of veered away from the confession of the church and were being restored back, people who were not in conformity with the confession of the church and were looking to come back to the supper. The very last prayer in the prayer of the church was always the prayer of dismissal. And anybody who was not prepared and worthy to receive the Lord's Supper would be dismissed. So that would include people who were still in the in the state of penance, those who were kind of coming back to the church after having veered away from the confession of the church, and those who were not baptized, the catechumens. And this prayer of dismissal would be the final prayer, and they would be dismissed. They would leave the, the community because they were not allowed to not only go to the Lord's Supper, but be part of the Lord's Supper liturgy. Now, believe it or not, that's where we get the word mass from, because it was the dismissal, Messiah, 
you know, the Deutsche Misse is what how it's called, Missi, the Latin word for mass. The prayers of dismissal were, was the final act of the liturgy of the word, and it becomes, in a curious way, the word that's used to describe the whole liturgy, you know, of word and sacrament. So it's a very, very important part. And as soon as the the, the penitents and the catechumens were dismissed, the baptized would come together and they would show the reconciliation they have. They would show that the love that they had for one another with the intimate expression of a kiss called the kiss of peace, that we are at peace with one another and that we are, are willing to, to come now together to receive this sacrament. Now in the ancient church, the congregation was divided between men and women on one side. So the kiss would be between the men and the kiss would be between the women. But it was it was not a kind of a thing that was you know just something that was in the culture that the culture was a a kissing culture. Yeah, they might they might have embraced each other more in the culture than we do, but the kiss of peace was unique to the church, and the church could do it because the gospel gave them the freedom to do this, and it was a profound statement that all of us who are gathered here are now at peace with one another, we're one with one another, we are in a state of forgiveness with one another, and we can receive the sacrament together with one another. That brings us to the Liturgy of the Lord's Supper that begins with something called the preface. What is it? The preface might be the most ancient part of the Church's liturgy. It goes back, obviously, the first part, the Lord be with you, comes from the scriptures. I think the best reference there is the Annunciation, where the angel Gabriel says to Mary, the Lord is with you. I mean, it's a declaration by the pastor to the people that Christ is now present among us, and that he's going to be present among us in a way that we would never have possibly imagine before the coming of Christ. And the people should respond, and with thy spirit. The newer translation, which even the Roman Catholics don't use anymore, and also with you, just doesn't capture the meaning of what that response is. When they say, and with thy spirit, or with your spirit, what they're saying is that we believe, Pastor, that through your standing in the stead and by the command of Jesus, in your office as a called and ordained servant of the word, through your liturgy that you are going now to preside over for the liturgy of the sacrament, through your spirit, so to speak, the Lord is going to be present among us. And I mean, that's, that is one of the most profound statements you can make. I mean, it's just a remarkable calling forth the reality of what's happening here. And then the pastor goes on to say, lift up your hearts. Now that that is, a again, another profound statement that he's calling us to lift our hearts up into heaven with Christ and all the company of heaven, which is exactly what we do when we commune together at the Lord's Supper. This is where heaven and earth is now going to come together. And lifting up your hearts means that, you know, this union of heaven and earth is happening. And the people are 
you know, they, what they're doing is they're claiming this, they're affirming this. We lift them to the Lord. We want this. We want heaven and earth to come together. And this is the reason for giving thanks. And remember, the language of thanksgiving is built into the words of institution. This is where we get the, the word Eucharist from. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Let us thank him for the fact that he is coming to us in, with, and under the bread and wine with his body and blood. And again, the people affirm this. It is right to give him thanks and praise. This is what we want to happen. So this is really an expression of Eucharistic joy. For all thanksgiving, all praise come from joy that results from our union with Christ. And the the preface captures all of that. I think so often this goes by us so quickly. It's just like the beginning, but some of the most profound theology in the entire liturgy is in the preface to the Lord's Supper. The proper preface simply describes the part of the preface that changes. Is that correct? Yeah. It's the part that is varied every service, depending upon where we are in the church here. So there's a, a proper preface for Advent, one for Christmas, one for Epiphany, one for Lent, one for Holy Week, one for Easter, etc. I mean, every, and you're focusing the people on where we are now in the church here. This obviously comes later because it's, it's part of the, the church here, but all of this is part of what the early Christians called the Eucharistic prayer, namely that we're gathering together as the people of God to give thanks for the fact that Christ is present here among us. And if you, if you look at, at how it starts, it is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, Holy Lord, Almighty Father, everlasting God. This is the right thing to do. This is healthy, salutary. We, we should do this all the time to give thanks to the Father that he has brought forth his Son, that he came in the flesh, and that he now comes to us in the supper. And it always concludes with that great acclamation, therefore with angels and archangels and the whole company of heaven. Now this acknowledges that heaven and earth are brought together in the, in the Lord's Supper in the person of Jesus, that our worship now is joined with the choirs of heaven, with angels, archangels, and the whole company of heaven are all the saints who have gone before us, who have died in Christ. And what, what are we doing? We are lauding and magnifying your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying, that glorious name that we laud and magnify, that's the name that began the liturgy where we said, in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. That's the Trinitarian name that is upon us throughout the liturgy of the word. It is that name that we are laud and magnifying because it is the, the content of our praise, the Holy Trinity, and what the Holy Trinity is bringing about now in this service of the Lord's Supper. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. It's part four of our classical Christian worship series with Dr. Arthur Just, author of the book Heaven on Earth, The Gifts of Christ in the Divine Service. It's published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number 1-800-325-3040. 
or browse before you buy on the Talk On Demand archives page at issuesetc.org. We will get into the Sanctus next. What does it mean to inwardly digest God's Word? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. journal. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. John Warwick Montgomery tells his story of finding confessional Lutheranism to be the most scripturally faithful theology. The free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod's Life Ministry cares for pregnant women sharing the love of Christ. Listen to Pastor Ed DeWitt with Redeeming Life Outreach Ministries. One of the first residents we had said to me, Pastor, why do you do this? And I said, just stick with me through this class. And when we're done, you'll understand completely. Many of the women, as they go through the instruction, when we get to that part about baptism, they're like, Pastor, I want that for my baby. I want my baby to be adopted into God's family. God's mission here, lcms.org slash national mission. All theology is Christology. You're listening to Issues Etc. The Evangelical Lutheran Church holds that it is God who raises up men to serve His Holy Bride through His office of the Holy Ministry. At Concordia University, Chicago, we prepare men to take the first step on the path by which God leads them to His pastoral office. Are you ready to take the step? I'm Dr. James Ambrose Lee, Chair of the Division of Theology at Concordia University, Chicago. Learn more about the pre-seminary program at CUC by visiting cuchicago.edu, cuchicago.edu. A number of people have asked about Ad Crucem's process to order our first stained glass window clings. It's easy. Email us with your window's dimensions, the images you require, and the style you like, and we will quote to design, print, and ship your window clings to you. We recommend having them professionally installed. If you wish to purchase a sample, we have a gorgeous small Luther Rose cling available on the website. Pop on over to adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M.com. Confessional Lutherans are invited to rent a four-bedroom, three-bathroom Table Rock lakefront home in the Ozarks. Table Rock Lake is a premier lake in the heart of the Ozarks for boating, water sports, and fishing. This log cabin-style rental sleeps 12 and is 30 minutes from Branson and 20 minutes from Silver Dollar City. Learn more by calling Swanson Estates, 713-855-2681. Be sure to mention Issues Etc., 713 713- 855-2681. Do you long for a church that celebrates the divine service with reverence and joy, but without the unbiblical baggage imposed by a supposedly infallible hierarchy? Do you long for a church that confesses a divinely instituted office of the holy ministry for the giving of the Lord's gifts to his people and yet values and lifts high the priesthood of all believers? Welcome to the Lutheran Church. We're what you've been looking for. Find an historic, authentic church near you on the Find a Church page at issuesetc.org.
choir of King's College with the hymn, My Song is Love Unknown, playing right now on our 24-7 Sacred Music Station, Lutheran Public Radio. You can listen to Sacred Music for the season of Lent at lutheranpublicradio.org, Amazon Alexa, Google Home, Apple HomePod, or the LPR mobile app, Lutheran Public Radio. It's part four of our series on classical Christian worship. Dr. Arthur Just is our guest. Dr. Just, the proper preface we discussed before the break leads into the Sanctus, this ancient song of the angels from Isaiah 6. Yeah, it's the maybe the oldest part of the liturgy, aside from the reading of the, the Old Testament scriptures. There are many scholars who believe that the Sanctus was sung in the synagogue, that it was one of the synagogal hymns, that Jesus would have sang the Sanctus in the synagogue. And it is, it's Isaiah 6 and Psalm 118, which is one of the most frequently cited Psalms in the New Testament. And of course, it's cited at Palm Sunday, Hosanna, 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 blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. It's one of the great hymns. And I always tell students, don't leave out the Sanctus, I want to sing what Jesus sang in the synagogue. I want to join the apostles and the prophets. You know, and by prophets, I mean here Isaiah and David who give us the Sanctus. And I want to sing the song of Palm Sunday because the Lord is coming. And I think I mentioned before how Luke has the glory in excelsis as the preparation hymn, the ordinary for the liturgy of the word. And then he's the only one who has the peace in heaven, in connection with Psalm 118, the Sanctus, in his entrance into Jerusalem. And I I sing the Sanctus with Jesus and the apostles because we are now entering the Holy of Holies. We are now coming up to the very holiest place in Jerusalem, on the altar there where Christ's body and blood are prepared. And we are singing this hymn to prepare ourselves with joy, with thanksgiving, with praise, with blessing. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He is coming. And as you know, Luther suggested here in what he called the Benedictus, which is the Latin for blessed is he, that this is where we cross ourselves because we are entering holy space. We are entering the very presence of Jesus himself in the Lord's Supper, which is really where we go almost immediately with the words of institution, which comes next. Just make it clear, what is the Lord's Prayer doing there? Well, the Lord's Prayer is how we bring our petitions in the prayer that Jesus has taught us that focuses in the, in the forgiveness of sins that comes through the receiving of this heavenly bread that we're about to receive. And what it does is it, we always pray before we eat, and we acknowledge the gifts that we're about to receive. And Jesus gave us this magnificent petitionary prayer that shows us how clearly all the things that we might ever need are given to us in Jesus when we commune with his flesh. And so in the liturgy of the Lord's Supper, all the petitions, the first ones, of course, regard God and his name, his kingship, and that he is to be hallowed. I mean, all those things lead to the the fourth petition and the others where we see very clearly 
that the bread for which we pray is at one and the same time, and, and these are the words of Luther, one at the same time, both earthly bread to meet the hunger and need of the present day, and also the future bread, which will satisfy us when he comes again in glory. Actually, I apologize, that's not Luther, that's someone else. But I think Luther certainly affirms that when he sees daily bread as encompassing all of God's gifts, spiritual and eternal, as well as physical and temporal. So the Lord's Prayer is the final thing that we do when we are readying ourselves to hear the very words of Jesus and then receive what he gives us in the words of institution, in the distribution. I mean, the prayer is a prayer that reminds us that that God is a God who nourishes and sustains us, who feeds and comforts our soul, who grants us grace and help in every time of need. And it's just a marvelous way to understand how it is that we are prepared by prayer to receive Christ in the Lord's Supper. What has the Eucharistic prayer been historically, and how do we practice it in its present form? Well, the Eucharistic prayer was prayed from the beginning, and it follows the way the Jews prayed. What many scholars believe it was kind of constructed early on from the prayer at the end of the Passover Seder, what was called the Birkat Hamatzon, which very interestingly had three parts to it. It was blessing God for his creation, that he came and gave us these things in the creation, thanking God for his redemption, thanking him that he promised to send a Messiah. And of course, Christians can say that Messiah has come. And then petitioning God to keep coming to us as he is in this supper. And the Eucharistic prayer was, in a sense, how early Christians understood what it was that they were doing as they came together to celebrate the sacrament. Now, the words of institution themselves are, are a narrative. So they're, they're kind of a, a time out, and this is how we do it now. We kind of conclude the prayer with an amen, and then we set apart the words of institution as proclamatory, as a narrative and a proclamation of the very words of Jesus. And within the, the words of institution themselves, there's what the evangelist says on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And then the words of Jesus are, take, eat, this is my body, take, drink, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. You know, there's narrative, and then there's this very citation of the words of Jesus that proclaim to us the reality of what's happening in the Lord's Supper. But the Eucharistic prayer, in a way, is a recitation, and this is the way it was in the ancient church, in preparation for the, the night in which he was betrayed. It was a recitation of all the mighty acts of salvation that God had done for his people, Israel, in the Old Testament, that climax in the incarnation, in the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and that all of that now is received in the very receiving of his body and blood in the sacrament. And in a way, what the Eucharistic prayer, because it was a narrative of what God had done, it sort of balanced in the liturgy of the word, the sermon. So the Eucharistic prayer was sort of the sermon. And by sermon, I simply mean 
a narration of God's mighty acts in the Lord's Supper. So it's it's a, a marvelous way in, of understanding how liturgically linked this was to the way in which they celebrated the Passover Seder and even the Sabbath evening Seder among the Jews, that it was a adaptation of that. With about a minute or so before we go, and we'll get into those words of institution the next time we talk, do the words of institution belong inside the Eucharistic prayer? We have tended historically of late to separate them. I think it's probably wise for us as Lutherans to separate them. But what I think we've done in some of our liturgies is we we proceeded with what would have been understood as the, the Eucharistic prayer in the ancient church. But then we set it apart. You know, we say amen. We put a period there. And we go into a different genre, which is this proclamation, the verba. <clears throat> and then afterwards, after the words of institution, the amen is there, then we might continue to pray. But I think it should be set off, and it is. I don't think, and at least in the Lutheran service book, there is a Eucharistic prayer in which the words of institution are not set off and apart from the prayer before and after. So this is simply to distinguish not only prayer from proclamation in kind of that abstract sense, but to say, now we come to the words that matter most. Our prayers certainly, as they're proclaiming the words of God, are important, but these words hold a special place in the life of the church. Yes, and they are set apart so that you can see that they balance the words of Jesus in the narrative of the Gospels and the Gospel lesson. And you know, in the Jewish prayers, everything wasn't petitioned to God. I mean, there would be a greeting, and then there would be a narration of what God has done. It was a proclamation. This is what God has done. Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, because you have created this wonderful creation for us. It's a proclamation of God as the creator. And then it would be petition. Continue, petition. Continue to feed us with your good gifts, to nourish us. So even in prayer that self, there's proclamation and there's petition. It's not all to God. We're saying this is what God is doing for us. So it's it's more nuanced than I think some people always say. But I do believe very strongly that the gospel in the liturgy of the word and the gospel, as we hear it in the words of institution, should be set apart and shown as the climaxes because they are the very words of Jesus. Dr. Arthur Just is seasonal pastor at Grace Lutheran Church in Naples, Florida, professor of New Testament at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, and author of the two-volume Concordia Commentary on Luke and the book Heaven on Earth, The Gifts of Christ in the Divine Service. You can purchase these resources on the Talk On Demand archives page at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. Dr. Just, thank you. Thank you, Todd. It's always a pleasure. Friday on Issues Etc. We'll continue our Kids Have Questions series talking with Pastor Jonathan Connor about godly habits, genetic modification, the new earth, and more. And it's This Week in Pop Christianity with Chris Rosebro. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. 
Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. Repentance and forgiveness, sin and grace, law and gospel, more than cliches, real preaching for real people in need of hearing the real Christ. Christ for you in the divine service at St. Paul Lutheran Church of Hamill, Illinois, where we gather every Saturday night at 6 and on the Lord's Day, Sunday mornings at 7.45 and 10. Look for the Church of the Neon Cross on I-55 between exits 30 and 33. Find us on the web, stpaullutheranchurchhamill.org. St. Paul Lutheran Church of Hamill, where there is the forgiveness of sins, life and salvation for the people of God.